Our teachers have expressed that it was um, one of the hardest days that they've had in their careers. COVID returns to the classroom with students. We are collaborating with the Department of Health uh, to identify the circumstances. Cases mount just days into school. We need to get away from intimidation and retaliation. This virus is deadly. Teachers push back. Parents push on. A little bit scared, I gotta say, um, but I think it's necessary. I think they really need it. COVID crashes the campaign trail. Virtual debate is a, is a joke. There's no reason. I'm in great shape. The Miami debate canceled. We don't know what the president's gonna do. Change his mind every second. Both candidates set their sights on Florida. It's all this week, this week in South Florida. Good morning. Glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney. I'm Glenna Milberg. We have a packed hour ahead, a campaign trail debrief with Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, also Republican candidate for Broward State Attorney Greg Rossman. But we begin with COVID already in the classroom. Just days into reopening, the first cases of COVID appeared in Miami-Dade schools and in Broward. Some parents and teachers are wondering if the schools would be a safe and healthy learning environment. We have perspectives from the stakeholders today, those who head the teachers unions in both counties, Miami-Dade and Broward, Carla Hernandez-Matz from United Teachers of Dade, Anna Fusco from Broward Teachers Union, and Joe Jabara, who is a parent activist, past president of Miami-Dade Parent Teacher Association and dad. And we begin with the teachers. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, how are you? Good morning, ladies. All right, let me ask you each, give us your assessment here we had kids come back, 142,000 in Broward, about 25% of students uh, in Broward County, 142,000 in Miami-Dade. Uh, Anna Fusco, uh, how's it going up there in Broward? Well, you know, the kids rolled in Friday. Uh, you seem to be uh, anxious, some of our new, our precious cargoes of pre-K through second grade and our ESC population, some of our most um, health-wise vulnerable students. Uh, they, I visited a few schools. Um, the kids seem to be a little bit uh, shy and nervous because they haven't been in a brick and mortar since yeah. March. And some Seven of them months. Yeah. Right. Some of the very first time. So, you know, they wanted mommy and daddy or whoever their caretaker may be. Um, our teachers were, um, you know, lots of emotions, excited, um, nervous, uh, some frustrated. Um, as the day went on, you know, there were some glitches, a little, a lots of concerns about having to maintain that social distancing and our children able to keep their masks on and, you know, not want to touch everybody and touch on everything. And then, of course, Broward is using the component of that synchronized teaching where I'm in a I'm in a physical setting with my students and I might have uh, anywhere from two to ten. And then I have to reach my students that are still choosing yeah. to stay home remote. We're going to talk. Yeah, we're going to get into all that, too. But really want to address the news of the week. Miami-Dade's opening this week came with COVID in the classroom. Uh, Carla Hernandez-Matz, there was the first inkling at William Lehman Elementary on Thursday. Uh, later Thursday, we were hearing of four more. UTD, you confirmed six different cases. The official dashboard didn't reflect that yet. Uh, the very Obviously, I just want to put out there, obviously the first week, these children came into the classroom with COVID from the outside, but is this is this inevitable? Was it surprising or somewhere in between? 
that this is precisely why we did not want to reopen our schools in a rushed manner. Uh, you know, we are still seeing that COVID numbers have not dramatically gone uh, lower. They're actually increasing. And, you know, we're just concerned because we're suspect even of how our government is um, reporting these numbers. You know, we know of at least 11 schools out there that have reported something. And today, the dashboard only shows five. Now, I understand that that is a validation or verification from the Department of Health. But the, the same the same uh, government is the one that has an ineffective unemployment system and voter registration system. So what can we expect? I mean, it's just very sus suspect. It's ineffective. And what we need is our families to know exactly what's going on in their communities, in their schools, because parents are going to make decisions about whether they keep their kids yeah. in ver uh, um, Carla, online. Sorry, Carla, in if, if I may, let me... Let me uh, Carla, excuse me, let me break in and ask about that. Uh, on Friday afternoon, we learned that a school in Doral had in fact sent out a robocall to all parents saying we have one student who has tested positive. It seemed to me that that was a proactive and the right way to go about it. Now, is that a standard policy throughout the Miami-Dade County Public Schools? Well, I know that there was another robocall that came out of Royal Green Elementary this morning. So there's another case at Royal Green. Um, and that's good. We want our principals to be able to say that. I just wish that our district would not rely on the government. I, there's this fear of intimate, you know, intimidation. They were threatened about losing funding, and that's why they reopened schools. And so they feel like, you know, all these things that they have to go, do and go through these processes, which are very bureaucratic, when honestly what we want them is to have local control, make decisions that are right for the community, decide what's best, and move forward that way. I mean, we have a governor that, in a time of a worldwide pandemic, is actually threatening to take away funding from children. Who does that? It's it's inconceivable. You know, I want to get um, Anna Fusco, please weigh in here. It, you know, Carla is talking about the state mandate to open schools this week. Broward and Dade did not want to do that. That that is clear and that's public. But they did, rather than lose funding. And both districts said they were able to be ready. Did you see this week, was the district ready? No, our district is not ready. They needed more time. Um, they had uh, multiple, multiple employment bar, uh, groups that had to work um, extra hours over time to make it as ready as possible. We still had some schools that didn't have their PPE. They had to send out uh, educators to go uh, collected our water fountains aren't um, compatible for the students to be able there had to be um, tens of thousands of water bottles delivered that that didn't happen people were picking up their equipment and uh, you're going to read real soon uh, Broward County is right there with that list of uh, two schools that have positive cases in it where uh, teachers and students are going to have to quarantine because of positive testing yeah uh, um, it's, if it's, I can Carla let, 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 let me pursue something here uh, Miami-Dade School Superintendent Alberto Carvalho said a couple of times as the week went on, we have given the schools every bit of equipment that they need, hand sanitizer, wipes, PPE equipment, uh, and we're ready to go. On the other hand, you issued an appeal, I think, midweek and said, hey, our teachers need hand sanitizer and wipes and other equipment to uh, make these uh, classrooms safe. Uh, so who's right? Are you? Were you right, or was the superintendent right? 
Well, I'll tell you this. I'll give credit where credit is due, and I will say this, that I know that the superintendent has been trying to make sure that all schools have everything that they need and that they are ready for the intake of students. The reality is that not all schools have been prepared at the, with, with, with the same kind of equipment. I also know that we have run out, we made a collection call, a community drive for this PPE, for this uh, disin disinfectant wipes and alcohol, and we are out of wipes, we are out of alcohol. What we have is a lot of masks and shields, and we've been giving them out without any restrictions. Take as many masks and shields as you want. If everybody had everything they need, this collection, this drive that we're having would be irrelevant. And I'm telling you that I'm out of disinfecting wipes. I'm out of things that our teachers need inside the classroom. So I think he's doing whatever the government is allowing him to do and the money that he's allowed to get, which I'm sure there's back orders on a lot of those things. But the reality is that not every classroom has been fully stocked with the things that teachers need in order to feel safe in their classrooms. All right, well, that call is out. Um, and I want to go back to something you talked about, the synchronized teaching. I'm, I'm not quite sure that people who are yeah. not in the classroom realize what that entails. Really briefly, it, is it a, an effective way? Can it be, I suppose, is the better question. Can this really be effective when a teacher is teaching in a classroom and online at the same time? I don't believe it can be effective. It's all brand new, especially to our educators from our, with our pre-K to our most hands-on needy students when they're in a physical capacity, that it's gonna take away from the students that them and themselves, their parents chose for them to stay home and, and work remote. It, it's going to not be of equal uh, positions. So we have asked for, not, for this not to happen. And I can tell you right now that that was our number one um, complaint about being exhausted and, you know, uh, without the, you know, fear of having the, um, you know, COVID spread in, in our school sites. Yeah. So we know that uh, it is something that we've asked not to happen. We have a particular board member who has never taught a moment in her life who seems to feel that it's the way to go. It might work mm -hmm. on college level, but right now in our, you know, education system in Broward County Public Schools, especially students who have never been in a classroom setting, they need undivided attention from the educators yeah, we, that have we, walked in brick and mortar. Anna, we get your point. We thank you, as always, for your time. Anna Fusco from the Broward Teachers Union, Carla Hernandez-Matz from United Teachers of Dade. Thanks very much, and thank you're you guys. on the case. All Thank right, you. now we want to turn and get a parent's perspective. Of course, those are varied. Parent Joe Jabara joins us. He is past president of Miami-Dade's Parent Teacher Association. Uh, more immediately, he's dad and a really engaged dad in Miami-Dade Public Schools. Joe, it's great to see you, and thanks so much for being with us today. Um, I want to just let everyone know your daughter's a senior, and your son is graduated, and you're still in it. Um, and I, I want to get a parents look at this, but I, first I want to tell you that I met a lot of parents at William Lehman where there is a case this week who, you know, of course are concerned, but are not deterred from sending their elementary students because they feel like they're going to be prepared. This is life. They're going to do it and, and they're going back. What do you think? Um, thank you for having me back on the program, um, Lena, Michael. My, my opinion, speaking of parents, not only do, am I my number one role, my number one hat is dad. I also serve as a parent as the district advisory chair for Title I. And hearing from parents, it's, it's literally split 50-50 in my opinion, hmm. where parents are willing to send their kids to school knowing the risk. And the risks are there. Let's be clear with each other. There will be more COVID cases. There isn't a cure or vaccine. Just today, John Hopkins reported 50 plus thousand four straight days 
of COVID in the United States, the risks are there. I talk to parents such as myself who have kids in high school and they're more than happy to leave the kids at home, as am I with my daughter who's a senior. I'd love for her to be in school and I trust her school and what they're doing. But as a type one diabetic with hypertension, I don't want the risk either for myself or my daughter. I speak to parents who say, Joe, the social benefits of having my kid at school, wearing a mask, social distance to the best of their capacity, and washing their hands is better. And Glenna, Michael, I want to emphasize schools should be open, choice should be given to parents as it's been, because there are places, schools are the places where kids are most safe sometimes, where they get those meals sometimes, and where they get the social and emotional benefits of being around others like themselves. So uh, it's it's a tough call for me as a parent. That call was very simple due to pre-existing conditions. Uh, I do think my daughter's school is doing phenomenally well, but I don't want to take those risks. It's a parent's choice. The school district has given them the choice to stay at home or to be at the schoolhouse. Yeah. Well, we understand how complicated this is, and especially for a parent. My kids are out of school, but I appreciate, you know, what you are doing and what all parents are doing. I mean, the school systems in this country haven't faced this kind of a situation in a century, and they are better and worse, but they're trying their best to cope with it. How do you think uh, Miami-Dade Public Schools is doing, Joe? Here's what I think, Michael. I think the school district is doing the best within its capacity. I want to echo what the two uh, union presidents said. Uh, Local control, and it's something that we need to talk more about and something I've been educating parents about. A school district should be allowed to choose when schools reopen. I think this is somewhat of a rush situation, given the fact that Richard Corcoran, the commissioner of education, was dangling a carrot of hundreds of millions of dollars in funding and nine elected members of the school board, those elected by we the people to speak for we the people, were basically silenced and we had to reopen. Otherwise, we risk losing funding. Kudos to Broward for delaying it a little bit more. But those decisions should be made by the superintendent, his staff, and then therefore voted on by the board. You know, Joe, I, I Joe can I just, I, in the short time sure. we have together, I just want to bring you back to sort of a, a parent's role. Um, yes. it, it doesn't escape anyone's attention that this child at William Lehman was tested for COVID. Obviously, this child's parents had reason to test for COVID, but sent this child to school before the results were back. I wonder if you would weigh in on the responsibility of parents that everyone is relying on district South Florida wide districts wide. Glenna, I think that sadly, sadly, given the state of the economy, I think sadly parents who need to get to work will continue to make such poor decisions. Let's face reality. Um, there are a lot of parents who are out of work, a lot of parents without adequate health care, adequate child care, who will continue to make those decisions. I will not be surprised if we go from four to 10 to 15, despite the precautions that are being taken. It's a parent's absolute responsibility. Any symptom whatsoever, get your child tested, keep your child at home. For my child, our children, myself, and the adults at home also, and those superheroes without capes called teachers who will try their best to educate those students before them. So you're absolutely right, Glenna. From a parent perspective, responsibility one is ours to maintain safety and to continue to harp to our kids, particularly the teenagers who feel they're invincible. Wear a mask, wash your hands, stay away from each other. Boy, that's a good point on which to stop. And your advice is 
On point, Joe Jabara. Thank you. Thanks, Great Joe. to see you again. Thanks My very pleasure. much. Thank you. Coming up, a congressional perspective from Representative Debbie Washington Schultz. The Democrat from Weston is next. It has been another topsy-turvy week in the presidential race. President Trump recovering from COVID-19 off the campaign trail, but yesterday held that rally at the White House, and he will be back in Florida tomorrow. But not to debate. The Miami Town Hall set for Thursday was called off, and we'll talk all about that. The prospects for a COVID relief bill and more with Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz with us today live, Democrat representing the 23rd Congressional District, South Broward and Northeast Miami-Dade. There she is from her home via Skype. Good morning, Congresswoman. Congresswoman Good morning. Great to Great see to you. Be with you both. Good morning. Let's begin, if we can, with the status of that relief bill, as we all know, the first relief bill expired August 1st. People who had been getting $600 a week and payroll protection and other kind of absolute essential help from the government, they're getting nothing basically from the government. There have been negotiations in Washington between Speaker Pelosi and uh, Mnuchin, uh, the Treasury Secretary. Where does this stand now? Because it looks dead in the water. <laughs> well, uh, it, the, the situation we're in right now is certainly not helped by this erratic president who in the same week, within a couple of days, said, we're not going to have a relief bill and he's cutting off negotiations completely and to heck with it, you know, we're just going to focus on ramming through his Supreme Court nominee to, you know, on Rush Limbaugh's show, declaring that he actually wanted a higher number than either Republicans or Democrats. Right now, the bottom line is that the proposal that we have on the table would ensure that we really make ensure that we have state and local assistance so that we don't have layoffs facing so many employees across the country, that we, we have robust education assistance so that our schools aren't facing cuts across the country, that we restore the $600 pandemic unemployment payments. And, and Michael, what, what the Republicans have on the table is, is, is nearly nothing. I, I mean, that they are closer than they were, at least from the most recent negotiations. But we have, we have to make sure that we have comprehensive relief. And the Republicans, particularly because Donald Trump keeps undercutting them and Mitch McConnell refuses to really say he'll do anything, um, are, are just not at the table negotiating in good faith. Can I, can I just ask, the House the House package is $2.2 trillion. The Mnuchin right. package as of Friday was $1.8 trillion. As far as trillions go, that's not too far apart. What exactly is the holdup? The holdup is Senate Republicans. Because Senate Republicans, if they, if they were willing to come to the table, there's 20 Senate Republicans at least. About what, though? What, what, what is the, what is the they sticking won't support, point? They won't support even the, the, the $1.8 trillion offer. That, that's not their offer. They rejected that. So they can't pass even Mnuchin's offer. So, so this is an administration that is so erratic that they don't even have their own people on board. If left to their own devices, with, empowered by, by Mitch McConnell and led by Donald Trump, who's not brought both sides to the table uh, in unity, like Joe Biden would, um, then we could have a deal. But right now, even the Republicans, Mnuchin has proposed a, de a deal that Mitch McConnell says that he can't pass. Yeah, Congresswoman, let me ask you to weigh in in a minute about the vice presidential debate this week. But first, yeah. before I do, 
uh, after the debate, President Trump called Kamala Harris a monster and a communist. Now, I honestly, I have to say, I heard those comments and I thought to myself, this is the medication this guy is taking. I mean, those are really irrational and frankly offensive kind of comments, aren't they? Yeah, those are offensive and vile words that uh, I don't even want to give him the excuse of saying that they are medication infused. Uh, for a president of the United States to a call to call a woman leader, especially the, the opposite party's you know, nominee for vice president of the United States, names like that, uh, you know, is 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 similar to what every woman leader, every woman around a conference table who's been marginalized by uh, by you know other business, male business leaders understands is not what we need in the White House. You know, we, we need someone who is going to be a unifier like Joe Biden, who would bring people together, who's got a track record of reaching across the aisle successfully, and who would really heal so many of the wounds that Donald Trump has, has opened up uh, during his presidency. Congresswoman, the president has gotten this letter clearing him to start campaigning again, not saying that he's COVID negative, but saying that he right. is no longer a transmission risk to others. There's the actual letter on the screen, as a matter of fact, uh, no longer evidence of actively replicating virus. And he is on his way as scheduled to Sanford, Florida tomorrow. Uh, Joe Biden was here this week. He was on a campaign to get Florida Hispanics to, I mean, every vote counts. That Hispanic vote is huge. The polls are tightening in Florida. Um, and what the vice president told me, Biden told me, was that the word socialism is something he really wants to be able publicly to refute. That was his objective this week. Did he achieve that objective, do you think? Well, what's dangerous is that Donald Trump uh, won't be transparent about his, uh, his, health, his health, health status. Uh, I don't believe that Donald Trump is not uh, is not transmitting the transmitting the virus um, until you see a negative test. When's the last time he actually got a negative test? They won't say. And now he's bringing his super spreader event reputation to Florida. He he had hundreds of people on the South Lawn of the White House yesterday, you know, not socially distanced. This is grossly irresponsible and repeated examples of how this is a president who is dangerous. And that we should not give one extra day uh, more in office, so that we can ensure that we can get America back on track. Okay, but back uh, to the back to the socialism question. I mean, that that's a word and a concept that is very personal to a lot of people in South Florida, and that is the label that the GOP is giving to Vice President Biden, and and he tried hard to uh, refute it this week. Did he achieve? There's nothing in Joe Biden's record, and I represent you know really hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, many of whom fled you know, countries led by tyrants and socialist countries that were that were really a nightmare to live in. Joe Biden has spent his career as someone who has embraced making sure that we have a robust economy, a fully capitalist economy, and that ensures that we have a government that is part of making solutions for people's lives and not yanking out the safety net from underneath them. Yeah, That's the kind of president that he'd be, and it's not the kind of president that Donald Trump has been. Right. Uh, we, and we only have a few seconds left. On uh, yesterday, the 538 website, very reliable, uh, published a new poll that shows uh, in Florida uh, between Biden and Trump, it's 45-45. Uh, 
Is Joe Biden going to win Florida? I think Joe Biden will win Florida because when voters go to the polls as they are now, they want to make sure that they have a president who is going to infuse policies into our economy that's going to help create jobs and also make sure there's a safety net in place. Donald Trump is likely to be the first president since Herbert Hoover to leave office with fewer jobs than when he came in. And that's certainly not the mark of someone who has a steady hand on the tiller of our government. We need to make sure we have a unifier, a unifier who understands the economic impact and who will help get America back on track and have America's health as their top priority. Now, Donald Florida Trump is, is the furthest thing from that. Florida is such a divided state, and I think both parties would say voter turnout is key. Congresswoman, yeah. thanks so much Thank for your you. time. Great Thank to you. see you. Thanks very much. All right, now Broward County is going to get a new state attorney in the November election. We have already introduced you to the Democrat candidate, Harold Fernandez Pryor, and next we'll introduce you to the Republican, Greg Rossman, with us live. Stay tuned. For more than four decades, Mike Satz has been the Broward state attorney, a record run but he decided to step down. And that set off a fierce competition to succeed him. And it's come down to two candidates. Harold Pryor is the Democrat in the race and Greg Rossman, a Republican who is an assistant Broward state attorney for 20 years, rising to head the career criminal unit. He tried serious felony cases. He opened his own law firm six years ago. And there he is right now with <laughs> us live from his home in Hollywood. Good morning. And first question to you, why did you leave that office in the first place? Good morning, Glenna. Good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Um, so I, the, the goal was to be there 30, 35 years and retire anonymously, hopefully having served the members of Broward County honorably. Uh, after uh, 20 years in the office, though, um, it, it was time, time both for a change. I believe it's time for a change both within the office and certainly I could not affect that uh, in the role I was in. And so, so definitely time for a change for me. I, I never, never lost sight of the mission. And there's no mission in law like that of being a prosecutor and standing up in court on behalf of those who can't speak for themselves. But uh, it was time for some renewal for me. So um, that's why I left. Yeah, Mr. Rossman, you have said on the campaign trail in your questionnaire for the Sun Sentinel editorial board that that office is sort of stagnant. It needs to be shaken up. It needs to be sort of reconfigured. Give us some specific ideas. What would you do if you were elected? Absolutely. So, so there's a bunch of uh, specialized units in the state attorney's office as it consisted of now. And some of those reflect priorities from the 70s and 80s. Um, one, one thing that is, in my opinion, woefully inadequate is the focus on elder abuse. So I will create an elder abuse unit that will have three or four lawyers, a paralegal, an investigator. We will create a template on how to prosecute those cases and we'll teach law enforcement how to prosecute those cases. That's one direct example. To do that, we're gonna have to consolidate some other um, specialized units where, for instance, back in the 70s, 80s, we had a drug trafficking unit that was really very, very busy. Now they're busy now, but not in the ways they were in the 70s and 80s. So we may not need the assets in that area as we will uh, in elder abuse. One of the other things that we're gonna do is we're gonna make sure that we train both our, our prosecutors and our law enforcement. There's a big, big, big gap between those two. The state attorney's office is never really directly connected with law enforcement and put demands on law enforcement that they deliver very, very specific deliverables to the state attorney's office and to the taxpayers of, of Broward County. 
Mr. Rossman, you are running this whole campaign takes place in a post-George Floyd world, rightfully so. Mm -hmm. Racial inequities and criminal justice, criminal justice reform right there on the front burner. Uh, what do you say to the people of Broward? How will you take that office into this new world and criminal justice reform specifically to solve racial inequities in the criminal justice system and, and possibly in your own office? I will absolutely tell everybody that the people who suffer the most from the racial inequities and disparities in the criminal justice system are victims. I was there for 20 years. I prosecuted hundreds of homicide cases. I tried 65. About 85% of the victims in those cases were people of color, black or brown. So they suffer the most when the system fails. So it's not just the disparities. What I heard on the campaign trail from the other side was all the disparities in reference to punishment and sentencing. Sentencing. Nobody spoke about the disparity of crime as it is it uh, impacting those in the community. And it disparately, there's a disparate impact on those in black and brown communities. If we pull back policing, they don't pull back out of Coral Springs and Parkland. They pull back out of economically disadvantaged areas. So I will focus all of our efforts on prosecuting career criminals and serious crimes, no matter what your race is, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what your gender is, however you identify, uh, we're going to focus our efforts on those those small group of people that commit a large number of crimes. And we can't just look for simple answers. We cannot pull out one statistic, somebody's gender or somebody's race, look at the DOC population and say, therefore, that gives us a formula. We need, we need to look at data much, much deeper, and we need to rely on that data, believe in science, believe in the data, and follow what the data tells us are good solutions. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Rossman, before we leave you here, and I'm sorry we don't have more time, you are a Republican in a predominantly Democratic county. I mean, there are a number of people, and maybe Glenna and I are among them, who believe that the state attorney should be a nonpartisan office. Nevertheless, it certainly is. It elects Republicans, Democrats. Uh, do you think that Democratic voters in Broward, the fair-minded people, are going to elect a Republican? I do, and thank you, Michael, for even asking that question, because you just hit it on the head, fair-minded people. You know, leaving labels aside, all of us want the same things. We want clean air, we want clean water, we want safe streets. All of us, Democrats, Republicans, independents, whatever your party affiliation is. And I have very, very strong ground support from Democrats. I'm born and raised here. I'm a second-generation Miamian. Everywhere I've been involved in Broward County my entire life, most of my friends are Democrats. They know me as something other than just as a prosecutor. I'm a husband a father, a little league coach, softball coach. And in all those other areas, the, the charity work that I've done, those areas, those people know me. They know me for who I am. And they want somebody who's qualified to do the job. And, and I'm qualified because I've done the job. So I know the job. And, and I don't think somebody who is now going to be on their seventh job in seven years, no disrespect to Mr. Pryor, but, but if, you, Michael, you were trying to hire him to work on your show, if you were his seventh employer in seven years, I think you'd take some pause as to, as to hiring him. And, that's what we're asking the voters to do. This is a job interview. Decide which person you think is most qualified, leaving aside party affiliation. Let's just look at the qualifications. And as you said, be fair-minded. Greg Rossman, great to meet you virtually. And thank you for your time today. <laughs> Good you. to have you aboard. Thank you both. I appreciate it very much. And up next, the roundtable, virtual, of course. And we are going to take a much closer look at the week's top political stories.
All right, let's jump right into our virtual roundtable. Catherine DiPaolo Gould is a professor of politics and international relations at FIU with hands-on experience running a campaign. Sean Foreman is a professor of political science and chair of that department at Barry University. Boy, did I sound New York there. Sean, good morning, everybody. <laughs> Sean, Catherine, good morning. Great morning. to have you on. We're sorry we couldn't do this last week when we planned. Right. We are glad you're back. Uh, Sean, let me begin. I want to get both of you on this, but you know, you look at these polls, don't want to be OCD about polling, but midweek, the Quinnipiac University poll, which I think is generally pretty good, came out. It had Joe Biden up by 11 points, and then 538 put out this poll yesterday, had them 45-45. Again, as I say, don't want to obsess with polls, but Sean, what in the world is going on here? I think we all want to know that, Michael and Glenna. Uh, the polls were not fully accurate in 2016. I guess we could say at the end of the day they were in having Hillary Clinton slightly ahead nationally. But, of course, she lost the Electoral College. So we can't look at just one poll. We've got to look at several polls over a period of time and dig into their methodology. Um, but, you know, this has been a problem for several years. And I think the Trump supporters um, have a leg to stand on when they say some of these polls that show 10, 15 points ahead are probably more inaccurate and aren't capturing yeah. all of the president's remaining support. Yeah, Catherine, well, the, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, Catherine, we found out four years ago that there were a number of voters in Florida who, when they were asked who were they going to vote for, you know, they said Hillary Clinton or I'm not sure. Then they went and they voted for Donald Trump. So. I mean, the polls, the self-reporting of, of voters is not always so telling. Well, absolutely. And just any Florida poll, I'm telling you, this election is going to come down to one to two percentage points. Florida is always close. It's going to be close. So an 11-point lead for Biden, I don't, I don't believe it. But the thing is, too, I, there's some question, really, about how many Trump supporters are answering these polls, answering the phone, how many are admitting, like you said, that they're going to vote for Trump. So there's a big question mark. I think Republicans don't trust the polls, um, perhaps like Democrats do. And, you know, you have somebody calling your home. They know where you live. They have your phone number and your name. I mean, there may be some people who just don't want to admit that they're voting for Trump at this point. So, Sean, your, one of your students last week asked a question at the town hall that Vice President Biden was here, and he was introduced as an undecided voter. Those polls, there are people who are just not going to vote for Joe Biden here. There are people in Florida not going to vote for the president's reelection here. Who is undecided at this moment, and what's it going to take to <laughs> make them decide? Great question, and honestly, I don't think too many people are undecided now. My student, Mateo Gomez, got to ask a question of Joe Biden. Uh, but, you know, it came out that at least three of the people who asked questions at that Monday night event previously were on MSNBC saying they lean towards Biden. So, you know, no one really uh, is, should be undecided at this point. I think that the television stations and Thursday, they might try the same thing with a town hall with Biden uh, in in lieu of a, a debate this week. You know, they're just trying to find people who are not extreme partisans who might be open to the other side to ask questions. Uh, but but that's the, the issue. It's not about undecideds now. It's about turning out your decided voters who are really intense about their feelings. Yeah. 
Catherine, uh, let me ask you about the vice presidential debate. I mean, I watched it start to finish. I may have been one of the few who actually got to the end of it. I think some people tuned out towards the end. I think that the big challenge there really was for Kamala Harris to show that she can play in that league, that she is smart, intelligent, aggressive. You know, the prosecutor who uh, we knew from the past, from Senate hearings. Um, how did you think she did? I think she held her own. You know, she's not known as a great debater, um, and I and I think certainly there were some flaws. Um, I, I think sometimes people looked at some body language that they thought was a bit condescending. But Mike Pence, on the other side, was very evasive. Um, didn't really answer a lot of the questions, and I think. For those who did stick it out, that question at the very end of the debate um, by the student who was asking about civility, this eighth grader, and they dodged the question. I mean, I, I think watching the vice presidential debate was like watching normal debates we had been used to with these scripted responses, um, not really answering any of the questions. And after right. Donald Trump sort of going off the cuff was back to some of these normal things. But I don't think either one moved the needle. I, I don't think either one did damage. And frankly, you know, nobody ultimately, you know, votes based on a VP debate performance. You know what I was really focused on, especially after the chaotic presidential debate, um, this one was way more civil, and the moderator kept saying, uh, either Vice President or Senator Harris, you're answering two minutes without interruption. They, she kept <laughs> saying without interruption because of what had happened. But, Sean, the Vice President, Pence, really took a lot more time than he was entitled to. Um, you heard the moderator try to, thank you, Mr. Vice President, thank you, Mr. President. What can a moderator do? I mean, focus on moderators for the, these two debates. <laughs> what can a moderator do in that situation, aside from cutting a mic? Yeah, it's really tough. You know, you interview candidates all the time. Sometimes you have them on the show and try to give them equal time. Uh, it, it's really difficult. I've moderated myself, the mayoral candidates last week as well. And, you know, sometimes you have to give a few extra seconds to finish an answer and then equal it out overall. So uh, one point is I did see a report that uh, Harris and Pence had roughly the same amount of time. It was within seconds difference. So it worked out. The other thing is, how do you expect someone to go without making a comment for two minutes when their opponent is mm -hmm. saying something that provokes them? <laughs> you know, so I don't think we should cut off their mics. I, I think we should have more engagement and more civil interaction somehow to truly make it more of a debate, a back and forth discussion. There's no right way to do it. It's a hard job for moderators, especially with these powerful people. Yeah, we we understand we personally. We get it. <laughs> we will continue more of the roundtable with our guest after a break. Welcome back. We are in the midst of a virtual roundtable with Catherine DeBala-Gould from FIU, Sean Foreman from Barry. Catherine, uh, some of your colleagues out there at FIU Excellent people who do the annual FIU poll of Cuban Americans released their uh, findings early this week. They found that 59% of Cuban Americans are supporting Donald Trump. Uh, what does that tell you? I mean, I think that he is going to do better among Cuban Americans, obviously, than, uh, than Trump did four years ago. 
Well, I, I think that's absolutely the takeaway from this poll, that a lot of Cubans, when asked now, support the embargo and all of these harder line policies against Cuba than they did even four years ago. Um, I, I think the fact that um, immigration has sort of waned as one of the major issues that we're talking about with COVID coming up and healthcare and, and other matters. Um, and I think that's definitely gonna benefit President Trump and his reelection bid here. Um, the question is what's gonna happen elsewhere in the state and where is Biden perhaps gaining some momentum, perhaps among some older voters, perhaps among uh, women that might hurt Trump. So trying to figure out exactly where this might lie um, becomes you know, a numbers game essentially, but this is definitely good news for the president. You know what I think is a fascinating demographic to watch in this case, and you both teach them, are the youngest voters, the Gen X voters is what they call them. Frankly, Gen X voters, by and large, are not thrilled with either of their choices for president of the United States. Um, and their vote, boy, they have the numbers this time, and their vote can be so consequential. Sean, what are you, what are you seeing among your students? Yeah, I was just gonna briefly say on the poll from FIU and Cubans, one interesting point is the newly arriving people from Cuba are strongly behind Trump, which was, I thought, a, a, an important factor there. But with Gen Z and young people in general, every election cycle, we talk about how they hold the keys that, and especially this time, as you indicated, Gen Z will have more voters than baby boomers eligible. So they could shape the election this time. But I think it's as usual. You have a few that are really engaged and excited to do their first time voting and a whole bunch who may be still not paying attention or not participating. And I would just say that there is a concern, especially amongst Democrats, uh, that they might get some of these new voters out, but they might leave the top of the ticket blank and do their down ballot voting for the more local races. And so that could be a concern. And I think you're seeing some of the same thing on the other side, some Republicans who may not be happy with Trump, but they want Republicans down ballot. Uh, so that's what I'm hearing from some of the young people. Yeah. Uh, Sean, if I can, very briefly, you moderated a debate between Daniela Levine-Cava, Steve Bovo, candidates for Miami-Dade mayor. Uh, that race has come down to really basically revolving around the issue of defunding police. She says she would never be for that, but he keeps saying she is. Yes. And, you know, they argue over a couple of votes that occurred and how you want to interpret those. Uh, Bovo has a commercial with a burning car at the beginning. And when you ask him about it, he says, well, hey, weren't there burning cars outside the Miami Police Department at one point? So I think it's a matter of perception. Uh, Daniela Levinkova marched with uh, protesters and police officers in solidarity. Yeah. Uh, but opponents say, well, how can we trust her if she was, in effect, yeah. marching against police policies? Again, it's Sean it's Kessin, you we're going to have to beg your pardon. We're going to have to leave it there. Wish we had more time. Thank you for being Thank with you us both. this morning. Thanks. And we will be right back. Stay tuned. Great to be with you this hour. Remember, we are online 24-7 at Local10.com. And stay informed, get involved, go heat tonight. This is a Local 10 editorial with WPLG President Bert Medina. Mail-in voting has become a political fight, but it works, and there's no evidence to suggest otherwise. In fact, we proved the opposite during the August primaries. South Floridians voted by mail in record numbers, and it went smoothly. It's safe and effective, especially during a global pandemic. 
If you want to vote by mail, it's time to request your ballot. Contact the Office of the Supervisor of Elections in your county to request a ballot. Your last chance to make that request is October 24th. Fill it out and return it immediately, but no later than 7 p.m. on election night. You can also avoid issues with the mail and drop your ballot off at early voting locations or other drop-off locations in each county. You can find those on local10.com. No matter how you do it, cast your ballot. Of course, this is just the beginning of the conversation. Let's continue it on local10.com. This has been a Local 10 editorial. We encourage the presentation of contrasting points of view.